is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst, author, and lecturer, Stephen J. Foster. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from Sussex University and a master's degree and PhD in organic chemistry from Imperial College London. He completed postdoctoral fellowships in biochemistry and toxicology at the University of Wisconsin and in cancer research at Harvard University. He then went on to work as an environmental consultant in hazardous waste for over 28 years. Dr. Foster became a licensed professional counselor after earning a master's degree in counseling psychology from Regis University, and in 2009 earned his diploma in analytical psychology from the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. He is currently a training analyst with the Boulder Seminar and is a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. In 2011, his book, Risky Business, A Jungian View of Environmental Disasters and the Nature Archetype, was published by Inner City Books. And in 2015, he contributed the chapter, The Archetype of Waste, in Pathea Pei's book, America on the Couch, Psychological Perspectives on American Politics and Culture. Dr. Foster practices in Boulder, Colorado, and lectures widely on nature, alchemy, and the relationship between Jung and physicist Wolfgang Pauli. His interest in the images in the tarot, in alchemy, and the alchemical process led him to explore how they manifest in books, films, and art. He has written and presented on how certain films reflect the alchemical process and how alchemical transformation occurs within movies. This interview is being recorded on Sunday, February 25th, 2018, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Foster. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'd like to start with your book, uh, Risky Business. Um, I, I got that book um, during one of my visits to inner city books to Toronto when I visited Daryl Sharp and he let me grab whatever book I wanted and yours caught my eye. It's a little bit different, the format, than the other inner city books books in that the cover is one big photo. So if you open the book and lay it flat, it's a photo that goes from the back cover to the cover and it is water and are they swans uh i think they're geese actually the subtitle is a jungian view of environmental disasters and the nature archetype would you tell us a little bit about that yeah sure so i have always been interested in nature i grew up uh, in the country and i've always been interested in how we as humans live in this world are part of it and yet somehow feel separate enough from it to be able to use the earth uh, as a place to dump all of the wastes that we generate mm -hmm. and um, the book was really an attempt to try and bring uh, my two the two parts of myself together the the environmental part 
the work with uh, uh, hazardous waste and the idea of the nature archetype from a Jungian perspective. Would you tell us what the nature archetype is? Yeah, so we as a species grew up in nature. And so we have nature as the core foundational bedrock of the psyche. All of our dreams have aspects of nature in them and take place in some environment. Um, so it's the water that we swim in, essentially, and the air we breathe. And um, it's important to understand that there are so many of the archetypal patterns that Jung describes in his work that are laid down through our relationship with nature, whether it's, uh, you know, mother, father, or whether it's the idea of the mountain and the sea. And many of these archetypes uh, play out now in modern society without us really understanding that they have this natural underpinning. Mm-hmm. And for people that just aren't familiar, would you briefly explain what is an archetype? You've used that word several times, and I just want to be clear on what that means. Yeah, so um, Jung was instrumental in coming up with this idea of the archetypes. They are essentially patterns of behavior, patterns of flow of psychic energy, um, and they become activated uh, in the psyche and um, have a significant influence on the way that we behave, the way that we do things, and the way that we see the world. And um, he says that they are channels through which energy flows. So they lay dormant, and then we find ourselves in a certain situation and they become activated. Um, people bandy the term archetype around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, quite frequently, and they're very, um, actually, very powerful, and they're very um, embedded in the way that we do that we do life, essentially, as as humans. So, and and they're cross cultural. Cross cultural. Um, they're present in every culture. They. They manifest in uh, different cultures in different ways, but they all have a common theme or a common core. Um, so if you take a, a common archetype, like the mother archetype, for example, this would be related to um, anything to do with mothering. Um, you know, the way that we relate to our children, the way that we might protect our children. It's interesting that we see it show up in the tarot in the form of the empress. Um, And Jung used to use mythology. uh, Other people, Joseph Campbell and others, have used mythology to describe these archetypal patterns. And so the goddess Demeter, for example, might be um, used as an example of a, a, a mother archetypal pattern. The fact that she lost her child and the earth goes dormant for six months when Persephone was taken to the underworld, might represent winter. And when Persephone returns, we, we imagine that as being the uh, greening of the earth. And so spring and summer would be that, that particular period. So that's, that's what I mean by an archetypal pattern. So the nature archetype, that sounds kind of broad. If you're, does that encompass all of nature? So you had mentioned water and air and so there'd be the other elements fire and earth and 
it, it seems like it would encompass a lot or is it something more specific? No, it's actually very general um, because nature is, as I said, uh, kind of embedded in the psyche in such a broad way. Uh, it really is very general and it does encompass many different other archetypal patterns such as mother and father and and so that's why in the book I tried to be a little more specific about how we uh, deal with environmental disasters and hazardous waste and some of the environmental problems that we, we see today. Right. So so let's go back to your background. I had just read your bio and you studied uh, chemistry. Then you did these postdoctoral fellowships. And so your background was... What did you do for a living before you became an analyst? Yeah, so um, I became interested in chemistry because it was, uh, you know, chemistry is one of those subjects where you actually don't necessarily see a chemical reaction. You just imagine that it's taking place mm -hmm. and substances are transformed uh, from one to another. And it, so you can see how chemistry leads into alchemy. Yeah. And uh, you can also see how, as an analyst, part of our process is to bring what is in the unconscious and unseen into, um, mm. into the moment, into the room. And so the parallels between chemistry and psychology start to become quite obvious when one looks back on it. But at the time that I got into chemistry, I was very interested in these unseen reactions, how things were changed from one substance to another. And growing up in the country, I was always fascinated by things that you couldn't see, but you knew were happening. And so chemistry was just, for me, a natural extension of, of that process. And I found organic chemistry to be kind of the most symbolic of that because um, one is always trying to create a substance that you only can infer the structure of by sort of a deductive reasoning. And so um, it was, uh, it, it's kind of like another language where you're, you're learning how to create something and then try and understand what you've actually created. So it's always been very fascinating. Yeah, that is so interesting. I've never heard anybody explain it that way. And chemistry was actually a favorite subject of mine in school. And I, I loved it. Was your interest in Jung and in, in alchemy prior to your studies in organic chemistry? Or did they come after? Yes. So um, it's an interesting, you know, I've always been interested in the Tarot. Okay. And so around the same time, that I was interested in chemistry. I started to become interested in the Tarot, uh, mainly because growing up in the country, we had um, gypsies who would come through the village and um, we, had, we grew up next to a, a seaside town and there would be Tarot booths on the, on the pier where people would go and have these, these readings. So I was always fascinated by that, uh, but it wasn't really congruent with um, science. Right. even though to me they weren't that different. Uh, a lot of people saw them as being very, very different subjects. And so they sort of went along in parallel uh, for many, many years. And I didn't really become interested in Jung until um, actually I met my wife 
Nora back in the late 70s, um, and she was reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and we started having some discussions around Jung uh, at that time. And so Jung has always been sort of in the background and was always in the background through my science period, uh, but became more active. So I did my PhD, and then I did my postdoctoral work, um, and was working for an environmental firm in Chicago. And uh, at that time, I became more interested in reading Jung and actually started analysis with a Chicago analyst, Robert Moore, and did, did some analysis with him. And that's what kind of pulled me back into the uh, reading Jung, going to Jungian lectures, and I was doing both environmental work and having a background interest in psychology and Jung at that time. So, so I started getting back into it. You had mentioned that when you were talking about the tarot readers and on the seaside pier and the gypsies, and you said something about there was a parallel and you didn't see it very di- as very being very different from science. What did you mean by that? True science to me. I mean, we have science where we pursue uh, scientific goals of understanding, making conscious things that are not conscious. Um, and then there's technology, and technology is how we use the products of the of the science. So the interesting part of the kind of chemistry that I was doing was not necessarily the parts that were predicted, but the parts that were unpredicted. So you actually got more information about how chemistry worked by looking at the things that came up that were surprising to you. And when I started reading tarot cards, um, things would come up that were very surprising, but very uh, true and very real to me, psychologically. And so that parallel really comes in where you have something like tarot, which is uh, just a set of images, but the information that they provide opens up the psyche to new understanding. And so there's a parallel process between the new understanding we get in science when we look at the unusual and the new understanding we can get of ourselves um, when we look at tarot cards that are presenting images that are unusual or different from what the psyche is expecting. I love the tarot. I use it every day. And I think that you had mentioned it possibly was in your book or... I was also reading Sally Nichols' book, Jung and Tarot, and I read somewhere that Jung preferred the I Ching to the Tarot. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how they are the same. You wrote about synchronicity, well, actually in your presentation, which you sent me on the Tarot, there's a good deal about synchronicity in there. And so if you would explain to us I know that's a lot, but um, the principle of divination, which I don't know, do you see the tarot working like that? Because I love what you just said that um, the tarot is is uh, just a set of images. And I use art a lot and I love art and I tweet images of art a lot. And I do that for a reason. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you talk now. Yeah, sure. Um, so as you say, that is quite a bit. Um, 
First of all, I do see a difference between the kind of tarot reading that one might get if one goes to a booth on a pier, um, where an intuitive reader is uh, psychological is reading what they believe to be um, the person sitting in front of them. From the work that that uh, someone can do in their own home with a with a deck of tarot cards, basically. Tarot, to me, uh, is a way of accessing information from the images that the unconscious that comes from the unconscious and that is trying to uh, make itself known or make itself conscious, which is essentially the essence of Jungian work. Would you say that then, if you were getting a tarot reading from a tarot card reader? Is it coming from their unconscious and not necessarily your unconscious? Whereas if I were to do, I have my own deck of cards, and if I were to work with them, then I'd be getting, uh, seeing what bubbles up from my unconscious. So is that the case? Can a reader really access you? I, it's hard to speak about a reader of tarot cards because I think each individual reader who does intuitive work has their own way of, of working with clients mm-hmm. or working with what comes up inside of themselves. But that's generally what they're working with is the material that comes up from their own unconscious uh, or from somewhere else, uh, and they're presenting that back. Um, I do think that uh, and have done this with my own clients uh, who are interested in this area, that I will actually work with their unconscious and what comes up for them when they see the cards, what what is stimulated uh, in the images that they're seeing or relating to in that moment. And is that because you're having a dialogue with them at the time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's much more, it's not so much intuitive work as analytic work where we're actually having a dialogue we're, we're using the cards essentially as a third uh, space a, an image that comes up perhaps in the same way that you might look at a new piece of artwork it will stimulate something in coming up from the unconscious and it's the relationship between the ego and the unconscious that we're working with uh, in the room when the tarot cards are present for us Okay. And of course, that might be different from when I'm doing my own work at home, as you are looking at tarot cards every day. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to, to separate that and recognize that um, the work we're doing is psychological as opposed to intuitive. Okay. And when I lecture, I make that point very clear that uh, I'm not trying to um, you know, do intuitive readings, but really follow Jung's work uh, with 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 the idea of synchronicity, and so let me just talk about synchronicity for for a yeah, moment. Please. Synchronicity, uh, Jung defines it as um, connections, a causal connections. So it's essentially we are making psychological connections between two unrelated events, and they become related because of our own connection to them. And so we can turn that around and say okay, I'm getting this card for a reason. What is that reason? And what is the synchronicity behind me getting this particular card at this time? And so, again, working psychologically, we can try and understand, let's say it's a major arcana card. That's one of the cards of the so-called bigger trumps or the um, 
the 22 image cards that you have, if one of those comes up, then if we imagine that as an archetype, one archetypal pattern, as described by someone like Sally Nichols, then we can wonder how that archetypal pattern may be playing out for us at this particular time. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. If we were to get the Empress, uh, or an, in some of the new decks, it might be an image of Demeter, then we might wonder about why that card comes up for us at any given time, uh, or in this particular moment, let's say. And so that's, that's how Jung's synchronicity fits into the, the modern use of the tarot deck. So with the I Ching, it's essentially the same pattern, uh, except that instead of having an image, we have the words that are created from the image behind the I Ching. Um, so in the I Ching, you might have, um, you know, water over fire as an image that comes up in the in the hexagram, mm -hmm. and that might represent a certain characteristic that's then described by the I Ching itself. So there's a synchronicity behind getting that particular uh, I Ching at this time, and then the image, the language behind that would be where we look for um, that particular synchronicity and its meaning in our lives at this time. Mm -hmm. So they're very similar in that sense. With synchronicity, the uh, idea is that they're happening simultaneously and that they're happening simultaneously for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I had read in your bio that you lecture on Jung's relationship with the physicist Wolfgang Pauli and it was, in fact, Pauli who encouraged Jung to write about his idea of synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And so would you say a little bit about what is behind, um, let me see how to say this, what is behind maybe the physics behind, the quantum physics behind yeah. how an inner and an outer situation can occur simultaneously. Yeah, so there are a number of physicists who have written uh, on this relationship um, quite a bit. I think there are a couple of things that, um, you know, Jung was also friends with Einstein, and Einstein would uh, have dinner with, with Jung on occasion. Um, and there are some areas in physics that are pretty complicated but they there are two that are particularly interesting in the in the field of statistical mechanics which is the way that mathematically they try and describe how reactions happen or electrons move there's something that we're all familiar with called the bell-shaped curve and if you imagine that the very ends of the bell-shaped curve uh, describe situations that happen very infrequently. But it may be that those particular situations, even though they happen very infrequently, have a significant impact because they are actually very large, they have a large consequence. And so you can imagine how um, if you take those rare but uh, powerful occurrences, um, how they might relate to the area of synchronicity. So it's very rare that two things might coincide, 
But when they do, they have a significant impact on the psyche. And so that's sort of the discussion that Jung and the physicists would have is this sort of rare occurrence of something that's very important. And then the second aspect that uh, has been discussed quite a bit in the relationship between physics and Jungian psychology is the idea that um, paired electrons will operate the same way even though they may be separated over a great distance. Mm -hmm. And so if you do something to one of these pairs, the other one will also do the same thing. And so for Jung, that fit within the realm of alchemy uh, because the alchemists had a saying, as above, so below. And so they were imagining that if one electron were in one field or dimension and it changed, then there would be a change in the corresponding electron in some other space. And so you can see that we're now affecting um, something that may be on the inside uh, and it will affect something on the outside and vice versa. And so the way those electrons behaved was symbolic of how Jung imagined that um, the psyche might behave mm -hmm. when, it, when affected above and below or in and out. So. Going back a little bit to us talking about whether or not Jung wrote about the tarot, and if he didn't, why is the tarot often associated with Jung? Uh, my thoughts about this are that uh, Jung's description of the archetypes fits very nicely with the pattern of the tarot. There are 22 archetypes in the major arcana, and they, they fit very nicely into that pattern. Um, I think that he shied, this is my fantasy, of course, okay. but I always felt like Jung shied away from the Tarot for a number of reasons. If you look at the way that Jung grew up uh, in, the, in the field of uh, clairvoyance and psychics, I mean, his uh, thesis was on his cousin and her intuitive work. So, you know, you can imagine that Jung actually was exposed to the Tarot quite a bit if he was moving in those circles where his family was aware of those kind of circles. Mm -hmm. He also had his own religious background, and a lot of people have this idea that the Tarot is somehow the devil's picture book. And so there may have been some stigma associated with that particular set of images, or he, maybe he just knew them well and was more interested in the way that uh, other cultures had, had worked with the process of divination psychologically. Mm -hmm. He mentions Tarot once in his um, collected works, and it's to reference a lecture. Uh, you can actually get the lecture, but it's in German. And if you look at the German translation, the, um, the author goes through and describes uh, the process of the Tarot from a numero numerological perspective. So I think he probably felt that others were working in that area. Although there is a sort of correspondence where he had requested James Hall and another analyst to look into the Tarot more deeply. So obviously he was interested and saw the connections. I just don't think it really interested him to pursue it at that time. You mentioned the major arcana, but there's also the minor arcana, and they are the four suits, swords, mm -hmm. cups, rods, or wands and pentacles, and you liken them to the four temperaments or types. 
Mm-hmm. Would you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's easy to imagine that if you lay the cards out um, in such a way that the um, they correspond pretty well to Jung's typology. Mm-hmm. The the swords are all about uh, thoughts, uh, action, discernment, and so they fit very nicely into the idea that uh, thinking types have those particular behaviors, and often the swords. Uh, represent those kind of actions, you know, discernment and um, action through thought. Whereas something like the cups are much more feeling oriented, they relate to water, and so you can see how they might equate to that particular uh, feeling typology, and so on. Sensation types often are very detail oriented, uh, very precise with their timing and, and other things. And so you can see how uh, pentacles might fit well with that kind of typology. Mm-hmm. So to me, they fit quite nicely into Jung's pattern, both from the major arcana and from the minor arcana type. So if you are working with a client, and do you do this separately? Or do you incorporate this into your analytic work? Well, that's an area that uh, is usually very specific to each client. It's not something that I ever bring up. It's often something that people bring up with me or they will have an interest in working. They have their own Tarot practice and they're interested in doing readings and getting some psychological interpretation of what's going on with inside them. Um, So really, it's something that I let the clients uh, take the lead on Mm -hmm. rather than sort of having it be my opinion about what we should be doing in the room. With the major arcana and those images representing the archetypes, how is that different with the minor arcana? Yeah. So the way the way that um, the tarot is constructed, each card in, in the traditional sense of the way that tarot is done if you go back to how intuitives typically work, each card does have its own separate meaning. Um, and the way I imagine this is that in the same way that Arch- Jung says that archetypes are at the core of each complex, you could imagine that if you were to pull a particular card from the minor arcana, mm. that there might be some archetypal influence on that card from the underlying archetypal structures. And so if you look at it in terms of union psychology, there's definitely a relationship between the minor arcana and the major arcana. And so how we interpret a particular card from the minor arcana would ask the question, okay, what is this image representing in terms of a personal complex? Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if it, you know, if it shows up, so if we pick a card, let's say it's the uh, the Ten of Pentacles, okay? Most decks represent that as a sort of house. Um, it's at the end of the, of the series of numbers and so often represents a sense of completion. Uh, in some of the decks, there's an older man looking at a younger family, so it might represent sort of an, uh, an older life. So one might have suggest that there's a complex associated to the end of life, to aging, to family issues related to, you know, have I done as much as I could or should? And so if we go back to the 
major arcana and ask what kind of underlying archetype that might represent, mm -hmm. uh, we can then find cards that would correspond to those kind of feeling content that we have uh, and, and the, the underlying psychology that's driving the feeling in the complex. You wouldn't look at a major arcana card and think of complexes because you're associating them with the archetypes. Is that correct? Yes. However, um, you know, complexes are how those archetypes manifest. You know, okay, let, said, let's talk a little bit of, yeah, about complexes. What is a complex? So Jung defines a complex as a collection of, uh, so it's an autonomous collection of images that are affect-laden. Um, he sometimes referred to them as splinter psyches. And basically they are um, uh, images that have energy that when they're activated, they come up and they energize us up. They energize us either in a positive way or a negative way. Um, and so that energy uh, can give us the impulse to get things done, uh, to run away and hide, to confront someone or to be in love with someone, you know, that they actually provide the psychic energy behind uh, a lot of what we do in life. And so a complex, let's say we pull a card and it reminds us, and let's say it's a major arcana card, and it reminds us, or when we're talking, the associations remind us of uh, a certain situation that we might have been in or currently be in, um, it might then generate a, a collection of other images. And uh, if we're working alone, we might note those images down. If we're working with someone else, we might ask them what those images mean. And in the same way that we approach a dream, we might um, wonder about what kind of um, images uh, associate to in real life and what might be going on in that individual in the moment uh, that is got a lot of energy that's being activated uh, and often that shows up you know the way that synchronicity works a card will come up that often reflects where the energy in an individual is actually in that moment whether it's in me or someone else that's where we might be having our charge. Someone's upset us or a dream is particularly disturbing and we want to really get to the bottom of the meaning of the dream. That might represent the complex and the complex is then reflected in the card that's drawn and that's where the synchronicity comes in. Mm -hmm. And we all have complexes, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, no. and I like how you said that some of them are negative, but some of them are positive too. There's a charge. And when we react to something or the the buzzword right now is triggered, when something mm -hmm. triggers us, that's a complex, right? And we usually experience a physical um, symptom along with it. Is that right? Yes, um, anxiety, uh, we can get sweaty palms. Um, one of the best examples that I think is uh, when we experience road rage, either our own or someone else's, uh, you know, our energy becomes high, we're, um, we sweat, we um, feel like we have to run or we have to fight. So something happens in that moment, uh, which is the activation of a complex and it pushes the ego aside and takes us over. It, it, it actually 
is running the show. As Jung said, it has us. And in that moment, we are uh, not really ourselves. And, and you mentioned that at the core of every complex is an archetype. So what is the purpose of that? I mean, what, what, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, what do we do with that information? So we, we know that that's a complex. And usually when we're in a complex, we don't know we're in it. And yeah. if somebody points that out, we will be adamant about how we're not in it. And that's, to me, another indicator that I am in a complex. Mm -hmm. When somebody close to me points out, you know, because they know me and this is the way we talk, you're in a complex and I start swearing and telling them, no, I'm not. Um, that's an indicator that I am. And they know, you know, my family knows, because I taught them, when, you're, when someone's in a complex, you can't reason with them. You have to wait until they're out of it. Yes. We keep revisiting th these complexes, I think, in order to heal them. We keep going into the complex and then coming out. And the more we get awareness around the complex, that's how we heal it. I mean, the, you know, analysts talk about depotentiating the complex. Yeah, you know, uh, again, Jung said that we cannot make complexes go away. Um, we can no more cut our legs off than do that. And so it's important to recognize that we're not trying to actually get rid of a complex. We're mm -hmm. trying to uh, understand it, to bring it to consciousness. Uh, and so in the process of doing that, we help take the energy out of the collection of images. And so when we're challenged by those images again, we are more aware of our own uh, unconscious reactions to that. I mean, you said that that you know you're in a complex when you feel uh, adamant that you're not, and when someone points that out, you get you get it. Well, obviously that suggests you've done a lot of work to recognize, you know, that oh, there's a polarity here that um, I've created between me and them, and that's a complex, and that is a way of depotentiating is to just recognize that you have that polarity. Uh, you've separated yourself from them in the same way that the complex has separated you from your ego in that moment. And it brings you back. And so the more people do work on themselves and are aware of those complexes, the less power over them they have. And therefore, um, the less likely they are to react in a negative way uh, and have it influence their lives for the negative. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to brush over this, um, going back to your background and how you studied organic chemistry, you got your PhD, you worked in the industry for many years. What then led you to go through the grueling work of becoming a Jungian analyst? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, working, when I was working with Robert Moore, I was actually reading a lot of Jung, uh, on a project that I was working on in Montana. So I was surrounded by nature. I was embedded in the thoughts of, of how Jung worked and um, doing my own personal analysis and realized that um, I really wanted to, to understand more about um, Jung's work and how it really came together with all of these different interests because it's a psychology that's large enough to hold so much yeah. 
including these these very different interests that I had. And so, as you say, I went back to do the more grueling work of um, going back to school and uh, getting a master's and going through the process of um, becoming an analyst. For me, there's a big difference between just doing the paperwork to get a psychology degree mm-hmm. and becoming an analyst. And it revolves around the two major components of a, a personal analysis, which is ongoing for many years, which allows someone the opportunity to really understand who they are. And I think if you look at um, the way that Jungian analysts are trained, there is this process we're required to know our own complexes because if we become analysts and we're going to be any good, we really know, need to know how we're going to interact with somebody else's complexes in that moment in the room because to do it well, and if you follow Jung's alchemical model, when you're all in the bath together, one has to make sure that one doesn't merge with the client. Mm-hmm but also is close enough to be able to really be empathic and aware of what's happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, the big uh, thing about becoming an analyst is being aware of, of how to bring things out of the unconscious in a way that does not damage you know, the client, oneself, the process. Uh, and I think that's the big difference between becoming an analyst and becoming a, a, a psychologist who knows the work of Jung is the, the understanding of one's own interaction with other people when those complexes are very active. And that's the best way to depotentiate them is to bring them in the room. And then, of course, one is like it's like handling a, uh, an electric cable that's been stripped bare of its insulation. You know, one has to be able to know how to process that material. Did you also work while you were undergoing your training? Um, I did. Um, I kind of had a busy life for a while. I was, you know, both going through my training and um, getting a license to practice psychology, uh, as well as having my own business, consulting business, uh, working on environmental work, which actually is not as strange as it sounds, because at that time, I was doing a lot of work uh, in an area that is now called vapor intrusion, which is where chemicals in the subsurface, whether it's radon gas or chlorinated solvents, would percolate up into people's houses. And yeah. so I was actually going into people's houses and talking to them about uh, the problem of these, uh, these chemicals percolating into their homes uh, and ways that we might measure that and then prevent that from happening. And so, again, you can see the parallel between what comes up in that field with what might come up from the unconscious and percolate into consciousness when working with clients. So there was, again, a parallel process going on. I had also mentioned uh, when I read your bio at the beginning that you contributed a chapter to the book America on the Couch, and the chapter is called The Archetype of Waste. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us a little bit about what you wrote there? So that overlapped with some of the work that I wrote about in um, 
the spring journal that I co-edited with uh, Nancy Cater, where we were looking at, um, you know, environmental disasters. And a lot of these are often related to uh, chemicals or, you know, currently we're seeing an uh, increase in the force of hurricanes and um, storms um, that, are, in my opinion, are related to um, the increasing carbon dioxide due to man's activity on the earth. Okay. Um, and so a lot of that had to do with um, just what is going on with the externalization of waste into the environment, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's heat waste or whether it's CO2 waste or methane or whether it's actual chemicals. Um, that in itself is creating its own uh, patterns of, of uh, behavior. Uh, and we're seeing all of the hurricanes, which one might imagine. Uh, and if you look at the book by David Shane, where he's imagining that the hurricane is, in fact, as a psychological event, is having an effect on the human psyche. And so now we're seeing this interchange between the actions that we have as humans and the response that our environment is uh, having on us, if you like. Could, could I just ask you, what would your response be to people who say, well, you know, hurricanes have been happening on this planet for billions of years. Mm -hmm. And we just, this is one of the arguments that I hear people say is, we just have more means of communicating about these events. We have yeah. weather satellites out there and news travels fast on the internet and on Twitter. So we know about these hurricanes. Yeah. Whereas they used to just occur and you know, nobody would know about it. Yeah, I think that is true. And in my, my book, um, Risky Business, I talk about that, you know, we do have better communication and we do have a lot more images that are out there now. You know, the news feeds come directly from the core of the hurricane. But I think if you look at um, the trends in the intensity and the number uh, and the uh, damage that's being caused by hurricanes, mm -hmm. uh, it is continuing to increase. Uh, as a scientist, it, it maps very nicely over the increase in the Earth's temperature and the increase in CO2 and methane. And so the trend is continuing to increase and change. And um, I definitely think that there is a, a relationship between the two. And I guess my response would be, you know, even if there is no uh, proven relationship at this point, and we're looking at lines of evidence, we have sufficient lines of evidence to really start to take action, to uh, change the way we're doing things in order to um, live on an earth that is much more sustainable mm -hmm. and that when we, I mean, I have children, and when we leave our earth to our children, we need to leave it in a better condition than we, than it came to us in. And I think the, the sort of Native American idea that we are simply stewards for the moment is really important. And we need to come back to that 
And uh, we need to take action in order to um, make sure that we are not perpetuating um, you know, something that will be untenable. One of the quotes that I pulled out of your book, Risky Business, is you said, as a species, we are often myopic, believing that the earth is here for our use alone. The reverse may be true. We may be experiencing a Copernican moment in humanity's ecological and species development. That is a discovery that we are here to serve the earth and not the other way around. And mm -hmm. I really love that. I don't know how we can undo the damage that we've done. And I, I know that you can talk about the environment and the weather uh, from a scientist's point of view, but what your book is doing is looking at it from a Jungian point of view. And as I was taught to do in my analysis is to look at things symbolically. So what is our behavior? What does that say? I mean, as far as the impact that's occurring on the earth because of our behavior, how can we look at that from a Jungian point of view? I think we have to really, uh, first of all, recognize that we are very unconscious in the way that we do things. Mm -hmm. That um, we really need to start working on our own individual consciousness uh, and bringing out of our unconscious uh, an understanding of why we do things. Why do we... Um, have the actions that we have and symbolically what does that mean and I think if you look at oil uh, as a good example of this um, you know we were able to extract oil we still are able to extract oil but we're also aware now that there are consequences to uh, its use uh, and misuse and that we have alternatives and I think if we can make uh, symbolically, a shift to um, so, so. If you imagine that what is coming out of the earth is essentially historical residues mm -hmm. um, from the past, mm -hmm. um, a lot like shadow material, perhaps coming out of the unconscious. Uh, and the idea that the sun has, for as, man, as long as humans have been around, represented light consciousness and awareness uh, because we can see more in the light than we can in the dark. So if you just imagine symbolically that we're really turning from um, a sort of shadow past to a bright future, then symbolically looking at the sun as a potential source of where we need to be, mm. focusing our consciousness, uh, represents a, a different approach and a different way of moving forward. There are a lot of people who are very skeptical about um, climate change. And I think if, you, if we as a species look around not necessarily at the larger picture, because then we feel totally overwhelmed, if we look around locally, if we look around the people we know, we look around the communities that we live in, and we strive to improve the quality and our consciousness of what we're doing on a local level, we stand uh, a much better chance of not being flooded out and overwhelmed 
by just the archetypal dimensions of what's going on in the world. And uh, I think that's kind of the, the message of hope in my mind is that we really should be talking to our neighbors and talking at our schools and talking at our local um, community events about what can we do to really bring to consciousness how we can develop a sustainable future. Do you believe that there is a force or forces at work that are undermining this effort on a community level? For instance, oil and how we could be, you know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but there are things that we could be doing and there are, I I can't believe we are living this archaically still. So we have the technology, we have the capacity to live differently and operate differently in this world. I'll just speak about this country, but we're not doing it. And so I wonder what is underneath that. And, and I'm not just pointing my finger out there. Me too. I still get, and I'm going to say it because it's true. And this is something I'm not very proud of, but I still get Fiji water delivered to my house once a month. Those are plastic bottles. I get, I'm not even going to say how many cases I get. Okay. This is something that a behavior that I've been wanting to change. There's no reason for me not to change that. And I I go to the gym every day. I see people carrying around bottles that they fill, water bottles that they fill the gym has in the water fountain, a spigot so that you can fill a bottle and people drink out of that. I'm a bit of a germaphobe. I don't like to keep drinking out of the same thing, even if it's washed. I would rather just open a new bottle of Fiji water, drink it and throw the bottle away. I do recycle, but if I'm out, there's not usually a recycle bin to put it in. Sometimes there is, like airports now have recycle bins. But there are things that we can change and we choose not to. Now, you can say, well, that's out of convenience or it's an economic thing. But to, to look at this analytically or, or to look at it from a Jungian perspective, what would you say is really going on underneath? I know it's different for every individual, but as a country, what's happening? Why are we not making these changes? Yeah, I think psychologically, you know, the human mind often falls back into, I mean, it's been conditioned to do this over millions of years, falls back into the the most uh, energy-conserving way of doing things, which is typically the way that we have always done things in the past, mm. um, just because it, we run on autopilot very often. And that's that unconsciousness that I'm talking about. Right. It's, it's that sort of autopilot, I don't need to change anything because it's working for me the way it is. And it does take a certain level of effort to to – you know, have someone come in and put in an under-sink uh, filter so that you can fill the bottles up or you can, um, you know, carry water that's pre-filtered uh, around with you. And so it does take a lot, not a lot, but it does take some effort to overcome that barrier. And I think there's sort of a critical mass in the psyche, if you like. It's um, There's a, 
like Jung said, everything is sort of paired, and there's a paired of energy. Uh, and when there's enough energy in the psyche to make a shift, things will happen. And I do think that collectively, uh, when the collective psyche um, decides that it's going to make a shift, there will be a shift. And I think that, um, you know, we don't know why things happen, but we do know that sometimes there has to be a swing of the pendulum in a direction that we don't necessarily like in order to generate sufficient momentum for the pendulum to swing back and achieve the goal that we're looking for. So you would say that this then uh, is about the reluctance or the resistance to change? Or is it some sort of, because sometimes I wonder, you know, is there something not just in me and as far as the changes that I'm not making regarding plastic and some of my other consumables, you know, my, what is my carbon footprint? Um, I fly a lot, you know, on and on. Sometimes I'll, I'll call Uber instead of walking, things like that. Um, is there, I don't know what I want to say, what is going on psychologically as far as are we sabotaging, unconsciously sabotaging things? So I'm wondering, yes, there's this reluctance to change, but is there also something else going on? It's interesting. I think, you know, we're always suspicious of um, the ways in which we see um, the political climate staying the same, the economic climate uh, pointed in a certain direction, and, you know, we're always thinking, well, why can we not make these shifts? Um, I think there is in the psyche, uh, you know, like Jung said, we all have these splinter psyches, and there's a shadow, um, a a part of us that is giving us the, um, telling us a story that is not necessarily true, but is, is a work against nature, if you like. Uh, and so this sort of part of us has to be put on the back burner. Psychologically, we have to ask the question, what is that part of us serving? Mm-hmm. And how can we have that voice sit on the sideline long enough to bring about the changes that we need to make? And I think, uh, again, communities... It's happening a lot in communities on a smaller level. And I think that that's really where the change happens. Because if we think about doing something on a large level, we the psyche gets overwhelmed so quickly yeah. that we feel like we really don't have a place, we don't have a voice. And it just leads to uh, a sense of not being able to bring about change. I think if psychologically we can work locally, then we feel empowered and we feel like we could achieve something. Um, and I think that's true in life in general. If, if, if we try and step out too far, there are voices that will push us back. If we can work locally and bring to consciousness uh, things locally, including in our own home or even our own, in our own mind, mm. then we can, we can make changes and feel comfortable that we're going in the right direction. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderfully said. Um, just to wrap up, 
Uh, Dr. Foster, you had mentioned earlier that your wife is a Jungian analyst as well, and she has a new book out. And would you tell us a little bit about her in the book? Uh, yes, she has a new. She's a Jungian analyst. We went through training together, which is a little unusual uh, with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. And her book is on uh, Jungian psychology and art therapy. And she, uh, in the book, she gives a great description of some of Jung's basic uh, work. And then she provides images and describes how one can work with those in a Jungian art therapy way. And so it's a rather unique book. Uh, she wrote it because she felt there was a, a gap between um, how Jung actually worked, uh, which was with the image. He was a very image-based um, psychologist, not only in his own work with the Red Book, but also in his complex theory as an image-based theory. And uh, so she tried to bring Jung's work out and then show how it could be used with art. And um, she teaches here in Boulder at the Newark University. And um, the book is really designed from the work that she's done there and other places. She's trained as, a, as an art therapist. And so in a way, her book brings together her art therapy with her Jungian training. And um, it's, a, it's a great read. That's wonderful. And I will provide a link to that on Dr. Foster's podcast page. So I'd like to thank you so much for your time today. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung.com, where you'll find links to all of the publications that were mentioned here today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. I've created a new YouTube channel where I'll be streaming a live video update every Friday or Saturday night. I'd also like to be able to stream live video from my travels, and in order to do that, I need at least 100 subscribers. So if you're interested in watching, please subscribe to the channel. It's free. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook for daily updates. Links to all of my social media accounts can be found on speakingofyoung.com. The next episode of the podcast will be recorded on March 21st, 2018, when I welcome Jungian analyst James Hollis back to tell us about his new book, Living and Examine Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey. Thank you again to my guest, Stephen Foster, and a special thanks to Daryl Sharp and Inner City Books. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.